For Valentine's Day, February 14th, 2011, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 137, re Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. Uh, I am your host, Tia Career. Uh, and it was like lightning. <laughs> Grammy Award winner, Tia Carrera. <laughs> I am Grammy Award winner, Tia Career. Here to present the uh, Emmy Award to Delroy Lindo for uh, <laughs> Best uh, Hawaiian Music Album from Chicago. Uh, the Chicago Code. In Chicago, mahalo means thank you, and aloha means whatever you want it to. No, uh, I am Matthew Rather, here with the panel to overthink all manner of things. Uh, we have music on the brain tonight because um, the Grammy telecast is uh, going as we speak. That's right, the Grammys, the... Um, uh, the award uh, so prestigious that the bellboy on The Simpsons in that one episode threw it away. <laughs> Remember that one? That was the one with the B sharps when Homer uh, Homer gets in a um, uh, Homer gets yeah, in a uh, the, the barbershop quartet. A barbershop quartet, right? But that's kind of modeled on the Beatles a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Well, because they sing from the rooftop. And right. the album, yeah, and the album covers, they do some of the Beatles album covers in yeah. parody. Uh, anyway, yeah, that, that one. Uh, he says, you want this award? Okay. Oh, it's a Grammy. So we've blown off the Grammy telecast to talk to you, but it's also Valentine's Day as we, release, as we release this podcast. It is February 14th, the hallmarkiest of holidays. And so we, uh, we begin, as we begin every time, with a question for the panel. Who is your Valentine this Valentine's Day, February 14th, 2011? Who is it? Who is it? Pete Fenzel. Hey! Well, you know what? I have I have five Valentines this year, and my Valentine's names are uh, Dennis, D, Mac, Charlie, and Frank, because uh, I just bought a new TV, and one of the first projects I'm going to endeavor upon is to watch the first five seasons of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, which I've had sitting on DVD for a long time, uh, and and I and I'm looking forward to watching some of that show. Uh, it's, it's like it's. I'm gonna watch it. It's a big screen. I got talked up by the by the salesman to buy a 50 inch television. Nice, <laughs> <laughs> which was like of comparable price to like the more the needlessly souped up 32 inch television I was looking at. So I was like, I have X amount of money to spend, and I like grossly overestimated how much this would cost or should cost to get like a TV for somebody who clearly doesn't watch a ton of TV like on a television, more on the computer. Um, and I'm like, oh, I'll get the HD LSD thing with this. <laughs> and I'll get I want to watch what you're watching, man. LSD. Yeah, wow. <laughs> LSD oh, you want, television. You want to watch the LSD television I've been watching lately? Watch the Canadian sci-fi show Lex, which, I've been watching, <laughs> uh, which I will continue to drop references to because it is just too ridiculous. But no, yeah, so the, the, I've wa- the first movie I watched on my new TV was The Men Who Stare at Goats. And the first television show that I'll be watching on my new TV is It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. And so, Pete, I believe I it's talk- just Men Who Stare at Goats and not The Men Who Stare at Goats. <laughs> well, actually, so it's implied that there are other men who stare at goats, and it's not like it's not a def- de- definite article that these are the ones that yeah that these that these are the ones. It implies that the movie is more of a general statement about men who stare at goats, and that there may be many such men throughout the world. 
You know, this makes sense because the show Men in Trees is very different from what the show The Men in the Trees would be. <laughs> <laughs> if you haven't watched Men in Trees, it's like a sort of uh, – it's like a romance show about loggers up in Alaska. Is that where, what it's about? Um, but it's not about like, you know, sort of the, the tree people who like cast their spears down at you, which I feel like is what The Men in the Trees would be about. It would have to be some sort of Lord of the Flies-esque thing where like civilization has fallen and people are like up, up in the up in the. Well, Okay, so what would be the difference between men in trees, yeah. the men in the trees, and the men in trees, and men in the trees? <laughs> so the men in trees, the men is is uh, definitive, but trees is not definitive, right? So the men in trees means that they have like a quality of being in trees. So they probably are like in the trees at your park, like in the trees, like when you go on vacation, like they move around, right? Uh, like the men in trees. It's like a... Uh, and they, so sort uh, of fo- following me a la A Beautiful Mind, but with a slightly more Tarzan aspect. Like, oh, I'm being followed by the men in trees. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the men in trees, I see like sort of an elite unit, like a sort of Masonic order of people. Almost like a Da Vinci Code meets Audubon Society, right? And and then you got uh, – and Men in the Trees is just a Vietnam movie. That's all that's about. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's, I, I it's give Platoon, a shout out. a.k.a. Platoon. You know? Platoon yeah, exactly. I want to give a shout-out to all of our listeners who speak English as a second language because they're probably way confused right now. Um, for those of you who might not be aware of this, for learners of English as a second language, uh, in, uh, the articles, A, N, and D, are some, one of the hardest nuances of the language to pick up and to fully master. Um, Hence, you know, the, you know, Yakov Smirnoff jokes. Right. So, so to say it, if you don't have an article at all, then you're just talking about, like, the things, right? Like, the stuff. And, or not even the. You're just talking about stuff, either as an abstract concept or something that occurs in various locations. Um, you're not referring to a specific instance of the stuff necessarily. Whereas if you say, uh, stuff, right, then you're talking about a specific instance of it, but you're not – there's not a uniqueness to that – uh, that's, that's specific to the one that you're talking about. So, like, you know, a cookie is like a, one of a subset of cookies in general, right? Um, it, it does not refer to like an abstract concept of cookies, but it refers to a cookie that could be interchanged for a different cookie. Whereas the refers to like a cookie that is specific. Now, there's a term for this. Oh, man, it has to do with identity. And it has to do with like when you're talking about like, say, quantum teleportation, right? Where they don't actually move the matter. They, they break down the matter's constituent particles and they reform it somewhere else with identical, with identical quantum characteristics. And because in quantum physics, a particle with the same essential quantum characteristics is indistinguishable from being the same particle, they can claim that the object has moved. But from those of us who would, be, would uh, refer to sort of the subjective reality of the thing that has been moved, there's a philosophical degree to which it is not the same thing. So if you, were, if you were – in other words, Pete, you're saying that if you were to teleport, you would be a Pete Fenzel, but not yes. the, the Pete Fenzel. <laughs> Exactly. Now, this is like what happened to Ohio State University because they started teleporting it around the country and then they had to name one the Ohio State University, which is a joke for football fans. <laughs> Never mind. People, the intersection of Ohio State football fans and people who are fond of quantum physics, which is a huge intersection because it is an institution of higher learning with many fine scholars. So there you go. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. I'm so glad I asked. Hey, Mark Lee, who's your... <laughs> That's going to be on my tombstone, by the way. I'm so glad I asked. Is, is what's going to. <laughs> <laughs> All right, go ahead. Pete, okay. Fenzel, Pete Fenzel, beloved son and podcaster. Quote: I'm so <laughs> glad I asked. Um, Mark Lee, who is your Valentine? <laughs> okay, my Valentine is a special guy. He's an older guy. 
He actually is just getting out of a long, very long-term relationship. Um, you know, he was really rejected by his former, by his former lover. And he's down and out. And I feel like I'm going to come in and pick him up on the rebound. I am, of course, referring to former Egyptian president Hosni Mubarak. <laughs> Hosni. Oh, man. Hosni, oh. Call he's me. Been he's been hurt before. Like, he's a vulnerable Hosni, man right now. I won't hurt you, baby. <laughs> hey, you, know, you, know what they, you know what they say. Mubarak moo problems, right? Ah, uh, 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 I, I, heard, I heard a pretty smarmy line the other day, which was that, this, the chick, that there was a chick who had a Mubarak ass. Which means she had an ass that won't quit. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, that joke doesn't work anymore. You have to call it a Mugabe ass now. Uh, It's great to have a podcast with four heterosexual men on it. I'm sorry, I'll rephrase that. So there was this dude at the gym the other day, and he had... (laughs) In all all seriousness, or not not even all seriousness, and slightly more serious, I read the factoid the other day that... Having been in power for 30 years makes Mubarak the third longest reigning Egyptian ruler over the last 5,000 years. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So That's... he's he's up there. I mean, he should he should have definitely built some more statues with his name engraved on the base that, you know, 2,000 years from now could just be trunkless legs standing in the middle of an endless shifting sands. But uh, Yeah, talk but... about a missed opportunity. Like 30 years, zero pyramids? Like, come on. <laughs> it even... Right? <laughs> It even scans, John. My name is Hosni Mubarak, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Yeah, yeah. Well, Hosni, you want your chance to build a pyramid. Like I said, call me, baby. <laughs> Mark, never mind. Are, are you... Are you are you are you building a pyramid in your pants right now? That was what I was trying to prevent from happening, <laughs> and yet I went there. I didn't oh. go there. John went there. No, okay, you see, like. <laughs> Like, uh, that's, you see, here's the, here's the difference. Here's the difference. What Mark did was an insinuation, but what John did was the insinuation. So so to clarify what we're talking about here is that we had a comment on the show last week. Was it last week or was it two weeks ago? It might've been last week where it was just like, oh, it's pretty clear that you only have heterosexual men in your podcast because you're so smarmy and you make these comments. And I mean, granted, you know, we've been a little smarmy lately. Uh, We haven't had uh, as many women on lately because people have been traveling or been busy, which is unfortunate because we like having women on the podcast. Um, But you know what? I want to have people suggest is like what active thing could we do like what could we incorporate into what we do that could counterbalance this like predilection that we have because clearly we can't help ourselves and we just fall into this without really trying and it's like a matter of social conditioning where we can frown upon it and be like people shouldn't live this way right but like at the same time like we do fall into it every once in a while because it's sort of in, in, ingrained in our brains hey, sometimes to quote Lady Gaga I was born this way. <laughs> so, yeah, so, so what should we do to, to progressivize our, uh, our, our discourse on the podcast so that it will main, remain equally entertaining? Uh, feel free to leave something in the comments on that. So there you go. And if you're watching on iTunes, uh, just you know, put up a smoke signal, hire a, hire a, a Skywriter, and we'll watch. Make a there. comment on ping. ping. Oh, wait, nobody uses that. <laughs> Never mind. Yeah. Anyway, I thanks. By the way, for everyone who uh, who rated us on iTunes, we have a um, we have sixty ratings now, uh, and many of them many of them are good. Keep those coming. That I think that will boost us up. We were in the hot one twenty, <laughs> you know, podcasts <laughs> on iTunes. I think, and that's good. <laughs> I mean, the one day that I happened to look on the list, I found this there. I was like, hey, you guys, check it out. 
Were we like one nineteen and a half? Is that no? Yeah, we were. We were one twenty. We were number one twenty. Oh, excellent, awesome. That's great. But we were hot. That is the important. (laughs) We were the hundred and twentieth, you know, most popular film and television podcast, audio podcast on iTunes, right? I think at one at one point. Which apostle does that make us, Matt? (laughs) Um, Not Judas. Thaddeus. Thaddeus, awesome. I can be Thaddeus. That's like Thaddeus's uh, friends roommates guy who cleans his shoes no no we were on the hot list man we were up there we were at the table at the last supper man we just were you know we were down by where the the uh the the broccoli rob was and nobody wanted us to pass it so we ended up with like all the stuff in front of it, like the rolls and the yeah. broccoli you know it all and the creamed onions creamed onions are delicious <laughs> that's so smart there's grammys. i'm gonna i'm gonna stop interrupting because there's grammys that need talking about it. as delicious as cream are the grammys aren't going to talk about themselves oh wait never mind um oh, john parrish is next on the list john what smarmy thing do you have to say <laughs> what up so having been told <laughs> oh that by the editor having been told ahead of time by the editor that you know we couldn't use our actual real life significant others as our valentine hi sylvia i have a second backup valentine which i have developed a new and loving fondness for and that is berkshire brewing company's steel rail extra pale ale now i know we've been i know we've been jonesing for a while for a sponsorship but you know what screw capitalism i'm not going to solicit money from people to talk about things i like on the podcast i'm going to talk about them anyway for free you know i will re- i will reject your money for a beer offer berkshire brewing company maker of uh, steel rail extra pale ale which is exceptionally smooth by the way i should <laughs> add you can probably tell by how effusively I've talk- i'm talking about that i've already had one giant, one and a half giant tankards <laughs> full of it. This evening. Two giant <laughs> tanker. Hold on. Three giant tankards. <laughs> <laughs> but you're not having extra extra pale ale, Matt. I know that because they don't make this just anywhere. No, it's a it's a local beer that I discovered and almost immediately fell in love with for the first time on Saturday night, and immediately bought a, a 64 ounce growler. Growlers being, you know, those giant, you know, glass jugs that that certain local beers come in, uh, most of which is gone now. So, uh, so yeah, that's how good this is, and I might just uh, take the giant bottle in for deposit and buy more. So, Berkshire Brewing Company Steel Rail Extra Pale Ale, locally brewed in the you know New England area. Check it out, any Massachusetts listeners. Highly recommended. Yours truly. Berkshire Brewing Company, be my Valentine. I'd also like to throw in there another New England brewer, the Nantucket Cisco Brewers, who make Whale's Tail Pale Ale for making a similar rhyming beer. Although I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't endorse it with nearly as much enthusiasm. I do like it, and it does rhyme. Whale's and that Tail is, is like, have... Whale's Tail is, is the, Whale Tail is slang for something, isn't it? It's like the <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's actually speaking. But speaking now... of speaking of being, you know, <laughs> smarmy, uh, heteronormative. Uh, insufficiently progressive, um, you know, apes, yeah, yeah, yeah. men, men in trees, if you will. In trees, yes. <laughs> oh man, but no, it, it sounds like John. John is in, endorsing his beer with a greater degree of enthusiasm than I am endorsing mine. But I have bought it for parties because it has a funny name that rhymes. So there you go. Uh, I guess it's my turn. Um, I I was going to say that my. Uh, 
My uh, Valentine was was a man, though though I am a uh, though I am one of the smarmy heterosexual men. Um, I apparently can uh, my heart can be changed because I am in love with a trader named Joe, uh, whose uh, whose fine premium lager imported from Mexico. Uh, I am sipping now under the Trader Jose private label. But um, <laughs> have you broken up with your former Valentine Costco? <laughs> that was your your choice. <laughs> and and uh I'll, I'll hey i mean just while we're doing it i'll do a booze pick we're not we're not too uh we're not too proud to uh you know advertise booze if you know cigarette companies we we might draw the line at tobacco companies but maybe not i don't know i live in california where we have medical marijuana we'd advertise that on this show um oh uh the reserve perrin p-e-r-r-i-n which i suppose is pronounced perrin in French, um, got a uh, 89 Parker score, and you can get it for seven bucks at uh, at Trader Joe's. It's a fine Cote d'Iron wine, and I have like half a case of it, um, five bottles of it, four bottles of it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that um, I, I, that are just burning of- a hole in my pantry. Speaking of Trader Joe's, I, I'd like to give them an extra shout-out for one thing. I have been looking for a while for – they're called – I mean, I guess they're technically called pigs in a blanket, although I you rarely see them marketed on that name. They're those little, like, Vienna sausages wrapped in, in little bits of puff pastry. And you used to be able to find them a little more frequently in, like, frozen breakfast aisles, but I can't find them in any of the major supermarkets in the Boston area except in Trader Joe's. They sell them, and they are quite tasty. And every now and then, I get a hankering for them. I have to go to Trader Joe's to get them. I'm like, ah, why won't more people carry these? They're so bad for you. I figure they'd be more common. That's uh, yeah, that's tasty. Yeah, they have all kinds, all manner of things. But um, I'd like to say that uh, my Valentine is C. Northcote Parkinson. Uh, the um, uh, the uh, d- the what the um. British, he was British, wasn't he? A guy who was who lived from 1909 to 1993, who um, who came to be sort of known as a philosopher of uh, administration, and is the author of the 1957 book uh, Parkinson's Law. Uh, Parkinson's Law, in so many words, is that uh, work expands so as to fill the time available for its completion. But he's my Valentine because I spent. Um, I spent today, Sunday the 13th, as we record this, uh, cleaning up my file cabinets. I have files because I am slightly anal about things like this. But because I've been moving, I moved across the country uh, in 2009 and then changed departments in 2010. I haven't been putting my bills and you know forms and health insurance and what have you, filing it away. I've been putting it in one folder, which is the junk folder of stuff to be filed. And this folder ended up being about nine inches thick. Uh, and the um, how, how thick was it, Matt? It nine inches of administrative fury. Uh, and the um, yeah, no, it's it's hot bank on bank action in my uh, you know in my junk folder. And so I spent today. Um, 
I spent today filing two years worth of, uh, you know, tax documents, bank statements, uh, I don't know, utility bills and things like this. And um, I only had an hour to do it. And so it took an hour. Uh, what, what would have probably taken much, much longer. DMV registrations. I found registrations from like car registrations from like 1997. So yeah, that's how, that's how I spent, uh, that's how I spent my weekend day before Valentine's day, which is why my girlfriend loves me so much. Oh, we, we passed so many opportunities to make jokes about junk folder. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Just, I'm just saying, all right. We're trying. Give us us some credit. Give us some credit. <laughs> <laughs> well, we all we all know that the kind of documentation that Matt is working on is what makes the rock and world go round. All right, so there's no re- no need to get too like uh, uppity about it. I guess. Are I you bringing know. that up because you saw Glee? No, God, no. There was Why a, would I do that? There was a cover of <laughs> <laughs> There was a cover of Fat Bottom Girls on Glee this week. Oh well, that's why I would do. Oh, that. They, they do make the rock and world go round. Get on your bikes and ride. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess I can do, watch that because I have a television now. I guess I could have watched it from my computer anyway and didn't. But no, you really don't. I really don't. I mean, people do like the Glee, right? It's very popular. Uh, you know, and I liked singing and dancing, dancing and a loving, wearing next to nothing, so always hot as an oven. To, the whole stick to com- what? <laughs> Stick to your com- watching it on your computer because you can fast forward through all the plot parts and just watch the songs. It's like it's like a porno. Glee is a porno. <laughs> yeah, for, for for musical theater, I guess. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah it- it it really is. It really fits a lot of the same uh, pacing tropes, stylistic devices, lighting techniques, camera humor, sense of humor, guest stars. So, does anybody make episodes of Glee that are just the plot with none of the music? <laughs> just so, like, as like an ironic thing? Or? Yeah, it's, it's called One Tree Hill. Oh, <laughs> oh snap! <laughs> oh, you just dropped you just dropped the Chicago code on those people. Oh. <laughs> Speaking I'm keep of Chicago code is a euphemism until it sticks for something. I'm not sure exactly. But... <laughs> speaking of uh, one, speaking of Chicago code, that's what you nearly did to me, Fenzel. You nearly got me completely derailed. No, yeah. speaking of One Tree Hill, and I'm going to make this segue work. I promise. Uh, as was pointed out in our open thread comments uh, this past Friday, the trailer for the upcoming Atlas Shrugged movie. Finally, finally dropped uh, this past weekend, and I mention it only because you know, for anyone who's read Atlas Shrugged, one of the big, one of the big plot points in there is who is John Galt. It's a recurring phrase in there, and to answer your question, John Galt in the Atlas Shrugged movie is actually played by someone who has 144 episodes of One Tree Hill to his credit, <laughs> and not a lot else. I mean, he was apparently in Boondock Saints two. Uh, he had a role in John Q, apparently. And, and oh, John Q. How's it going to end, John? I don't know. <laughs> Wishmaster 2, Evil Never Dies. <laughs> I, I, hope the, I hope the movie ends. Oh, this is a different book. I'm sure a different movie. But I hope the movie ends with him, like, like, like sublimely destroying the Master Prince to, like, One Tree Hill and Wishmaster 2. <laughs> like, because they're too beautiful for the world to see. Like, <laughs> but, uh... But yeah, so to, to answer the question of who is John Galt, John Galt is that guy from One Tree Hill. So, Does this have a name, or is just John Galt? Is he changing his name legally? Is that the deal? <laughs> oh no, it's Paul Johansson. If that right. rings any bells, is he related to Scarlett Johansson? 
Uh, his IMDb trivia page suggests no. No, it's spelled differently. The Scarlet's ends with an E. His ends with an O. So he had to go through Ellis Island. So makes sense. Yeah, you know, just like just like Scarlet did. You know, being (laughs) being descended from the Nords as she is. (laughs) Oh man, I am not looking forward to that nonsense. Oh boy, what Ellis Island or the Alice Shrug movie? Oh, Ellis Island, man. I got to get processed as I'm coming in. I got, got, I got a guy who's got me a, a good job at a loading dock where I'm going to pick up some hay bales. No, yeah, I, I, just, I just hope my, na- my last name doesn't get translated or rated as the name of the town that I came from because that would just make things so complicated. Man, the it's, way that people troll people today, like, oh, what town do you come from? Uh, would it be Baltimore? Uh, John yeah, Baltimore. Baltimore. I mean, ultimately, I guess I was I was born and raised in, in a suburb of Baltimore called Towson for a while. So I guess I'd be I'd be John Towson, which isn't a bad name, really. I mean, it could be worse. Yeah, I mean, I feel like nowadays, though, the way that people's sentimental or people's sensibilities work, if you went through Ellis Island, like so many people would have like like you know Pooper as their last name, and like like because <laughs> the officials like wouldn't care. They'd just be like, oh, nice to meet you, like you know. Mr. Shoots, you know, Mr. Does My Pants. And here I'm being heteronormative again. I should be like, Mr. Never Takes Out the Garbage. You're the, you're the uh, Mr. Like Lazy and sits down and watches NFL football instead of paying attention to his family. Hey, hey speaking, uh, of, speaking of heteronormativity. Yeah. Huh? Speaking of heteronormativity, Lady Gaga made a slashing uh, <laughs> attack. Uh, <laughs> more heteronormativity coming from an egg and playing the organ at the Grammys. The war on the missionary position continues. <laughs> <laughs> so can we talk about the Grammys for a little bit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, okay. We'll come back to various other topics later. Wait, but, what? Uh, we, what? The war on the mission? What does that mean? <laughs> it means that there is a certain cultural value in vanilla intercourse and the social norms that it upholds that Lady Gaga stands as the vanguard against. She is a fifth column that is uh, <laughs> part of a five-column penetration that is ungodly into our way of life. Uh, no, well, actually, more specifically, I mean, really, I mean, by war on the missionary position, I'm using the missionary position in extension for, like, a sort of Victorian sexual ideal, right? Where, like, we don't talk about our predilections outside of that, which is, like, appropriate and endorsed by God, right? Um... And it, it speaks to sort of like uh, yeah, a sense of, of self-repression and cultural repression that, that Lady Gaga stands against. Yeah, I don't know, I don't know about you, Pete, but I live on the internet. And the last time I was on the last, last – I think last week at some point, I, I thought, hey, I'll check out the random board on 4chan. Uh, <laughs> oh, don't do that. <laughs> you know better. I don't know about you, but last time I was on the internet, I decided I need to go through 45 minutes of deep unpleasantness. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. What happened? <laughs> there was no one shy about talking about their predilections, and let me tell you, they were not sanctioned by God. <laughs> well, I'm just, well, that's like the war on Christmas. It's, you know, it's, it's because people are doing all sorts of other stuff in December other than Christmas, just like people are having all sorts of other kinds of sex in the missionary. Well, season. yeah, I mean, apparently bloggers are doing it for themselves. <laughs> uh, sorry okay. you, you want right. to say something um, about lady gaga yes um so i was the only one on the podcast tonight who uh who watched that performance in the grammys i sat through about an hour and a half or so of performances and award givings outs um until before getting on to record the show um anyway so what i imagine everyone's going to be talking about tomorrow is lady gaga's performance surprise surprise right i mean she's lady freaking gaga she's gonna get out and do something provocative on the television is what she does so I'm going to describe what happened, and I'm going to ask you guys to help me decode it, all right? 
yeah. Please, please do. I just want to apologize, first of all, because while Lady Gaga was on TV, I was actually, and I kid you not, at uh, Waga Mama instead of watching Lady Gaga. So oh, I apologize for not getting the memo. That What's was- a Waga Mama? Oh, it's a noodle shop chain. Who can, uh, uh, okay. who can, it's, it's kind of like a Momofuku. Um, <laughs> if you're, if like you're, if you're at Wagamama, who can accuse you of being insufficiently progressive? Aren't they all, I, you know, organic something, something? Oh, wait, perhaps. But, but Fenzel, wait, hold on. You told me you were going to be at Shabu Shabu, not Wagamama. <laughs> That's why you couldn't watch the Lady Gaga. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Wait, 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 who's on first? Sorry. Um, <laughs> Okay, all right. So here, here, Other here's cultures are funny, and their uh, languages sound dumb. Like Lady Gaga's. <laughs> anyway, continue. All right, all right, okay. So everyone should be familiar, sort of during the whole repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell campaign, Lady Gaga sort of, I don't know if she coined this phrase or appropriated this phrase of, I was born this way, right? As being saying, like, you know, homosexuals are born this, or LGBT, whatever, they're, they're born this way, and they can't, you know, there's not some sort of, like, deformity that society should punish and all that kind of thing. Celebrate you know, the LGBT diversity, all that kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So the, her new single dropped, um, obviously called Born This Way. It's really nothing to write home about uh, musically. It's very much just kind of a pretty standard pop dance song. Well, most of her stuff is, but this even more so. Um, so she comes out uh, on stage uh, carried in an egg, right? As in, like, well, there were photos shown previously that she was, like, carried into the Grammys very publicly on the red carpet encased inside of an egg. Which, right. by the way, for fans of Spinal Tap, I remember that this is a totally a ripoff of rock and roll creation. And I'm pretty <laughs> sure Spinal Tap, I'm pretty sure that Derek Smalls was stuck in another egg somewhere off stage and could not come out to join the dancers. Anyway, so uh, Lady Gaga comes out of the egg. She uh, is in company with by a bunch of you know various scantily clad androgynous backup dancers, and she herself, most notably, uh, has like these looks like these horns or like some sort of implants like growing out of her shoulders like deformed shoulders basically it's just a little bit hard to describe um but i guess the subtext being that you know she looks different from everyone else and yet she was born that way ironically of course she was not in fact born that way some makeup artist put it on her but anyway so she diarates and dances to that there's various you know dressing and undressing going on and um and that was that yay lgbt so, so wait so she she's just like she was born okay. that she, the, main, the main salient point of the performance and the main symbol that was used was an egg that she came out of? She just came out of the egg, and I think the egg just kind of went away after, after that point. After, there was nothing so that, else was, in the presentation? That was at that the was, beginning. Okay. And then after, afterwards was uh, when she started sort of a floppy hat, and then afterwards, you know, what you m- most noticed about the performance was these weird things she had growing out of her shoulders. Oh. Was, she didn't, like, I don't know, like, cut herself and, like, blood spill over the thing. She didn't play... Uh, oh, she well, she okay. Here's another thing that happened in the performance as well. She ascended these stairs and played, um, uh, what is it, Takata and Fugue? The Bach, yeah, yeah, that's organ. Um, with and there was like some weird mannequin, deformed mannequin heads of Lady Gaga on the on the organ itself as well. And she went back down and joined the dancers, and that was about it. Now, were the things growing on her shoulders during the show, like getting larger? No, that would have been pretty cool. No, no, no. no. But the, our, our makeup technology hasn't quite advanced that far yet. I gotcha. I gotcha. Okay. Okay. So the main point there. Is, okay. So there's there's something interesting here, and I'll I'll stop if somebody else has something to volunteer. But um, the, so at least this is what I I learned whilst studying the history of hate crime in college. Um, 
so there's there's two different ways that you can approach um, kind of justifying or explaining um, an otherness, right? In uh, two main ways that you can justify or explain an otherness uh, in in a, in a civilization, and one of them is that it's a choice, and one of them is that it is uh, not a choice, right? For whatever reason, either it's because it's it's genetic or developmental. I mean, prior to current times uh this distinction would not really matter between developmental and, and uh and born you know like uh, genetic right it's 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 either something that you as a living being have intrinsically or it's something that you believe and ascribe to right um and and what i've been uh, what, what we found in, in in talking about this is that uh these sort of justifications are brought out at different times for different sorts of political reasons and can be brought up both by people who are trying to build a big tent and people who are trying to build a small tent so if you want to uh say um like a good example of this is slavery let's look at slavery slaves are born that way right uh in the united states uh in in other in, in the roman empire they aren't born that way necessarily they become that way because of actions that people take and they're conquered and they have a legal status but in in uh in the united states slaves were born that way and they had specific rules that referred to them that there there was nothing that they could do to change the rules that apply to them right um you know when when you have a certain status you do a certain thing um and this extended you know of course it refers specifically to slaves but it extends to all african americans in certain ways over the course of history um you know you suffered from these particular infringements because of something that you couldn't change about yourself even to the extent that if you only had a bit of the, the drop of blood you still suffered all sorts of social ramifications that were encoded and illegal right um and these were things that people thought were were the the right thing to do right and they weren't obviously they were tremendous abominations but but um, the fact that they were born that way was no defense against these things being forced upon them, right? Uh, and then you can look at something else uh, and, and say it's choice, and then people will also try to, to slam you for that, right? And a big one for that is like oh, whenever there's a war and people try to convert people to a different religion, right? It's like the Christians are fighting the pagans. The Christians are trying to get the pagans to convert to Christianity. As soon as you convert, you're fine. You get the full rights. And if you don't convert, then you're not fine. You don't get the full rights. Huh? And then there are different rules as to what you choose to do. A good example of this is uh, in sort of pluralistic uh, Islamic nations in like the late Middle e- medieval period and through to the early modern era or even through the modern era, you have situations where people who aren't Muslims have specific de- legal designations. But they can con- you can convert to Islam, but then once you convert to Islam, you have a totally different set of rules. So you can get executed for leaving Islam, but you can't necessarily get executed for not being a Muslim, right? And so, and in a lot of these legal codes, right? And this actually is, is true in certain places today. Um, so that's a situation where being born that way, you know, would seem like a freedom relative to what you have, right? It's like, oh, you don't, you can't convert me to, to your religion. I was born this way. I can't be changed. Uh, in that kind of situation. Now, a good example then to sort of complete the trifecta and, and the example that, that illustrates this is you can compare and contrast how Jews are treated under the Spanish Inquisition versus how they're treated under Nazism. Because in the, in the, under Nazism, they're born that way. Like, yeah, they can't be changed. It's a, it's a genetic bloodline trait or whatever. Like, there's nothing you can do about it. And then under the Spanish Inquisition, you can convert, right? And you have that option. Uh, and, and so the point that the professor is trying to make is like, we think that in our own day and age, dealing with uh, homosexuality or L- queer, LGBT, I don't stay up to date with what the proper terms are. I'm sorry if I offend anybody by using the wrong one. Um, but uh, I try, but I, I'm not as good at it as I like to be. But, uh, but you think, oh, if you can say you were born that way, then you won't suffer discrimination because of it. Uh, and that's not necessarily the case through history. It, it varies by time and place. And the big factor that he says is that the solution is different. 
and I use the word solution knowing its historical weight. If you are not born that way, then the thing that people will try to do is get you to change, and they will coerce you, right? And they will try to put legal limits on what you can do, and they will try to change your status, and they will try to do things to force you to make that choice. And if you're born that way, they will kill you, or they will use like physical coercion against you, right? So the idea is that if you don't think your enemies have the guts to actually shoot you, claim you were born that way. And if you think that your, your enemies are going to shoot you, like claim that you have a choice and they won't kill you. And that, that, that sort of pressure to go back and forth is one of the ways that this dialogue changes over time. Nowadays, we like to think that we have the technology to really say, yes, people were born that way. No, they weren't. In the past, people have believed that too and have turned out to be wrong. We'll see what happens in the future as our scientific knowledge advances. So that's my, my general take on like born this way, right? It's like I was born this way. You can't change me. It is a good thing that you can say that because it shows that you're not afraid of being genocided because people will do that to you. You know, like human beings will do that to each other. Uh, and, and it, but it is – and so it's sort of a game of chicken, right? It's like you're saying, well, I, I'm, th- I'm cutting off my steering wheel and throwing it away. I'm not going to swerve. So you know, if you don't swerve, we're going to crash, like that sort of thing. You're trying to change the payoffs. It's a strategic choice. Now, I don't know. I actually you – know, I believe it when people tell me that it's bor- a, a born trait. I think it's, it's complex, and like, I think the social definitions of it have changed over time. And I believe people when they say it isn't a choice, but I wouldn't be surprised if it becomes more nuanced over time, right? And, and we learn more about how these things work and that a lot of the way that people identify themselves is political. So there so, you go. That's my take on being born this way. So I'm going to take a, a slightly different tack. Sure, of and, course. Go for it. You know, not, taking nothing away from Lady Gaga's you know, stated – you know, stated affinity or stated defense of, you know, LGBT rights and the whole It Gets Better movement and all that. I take it, and this performance in particular, her emerging from the egg on stage at the Grammys, at the Grammys, which she presumed with some good cause and actually won the Grammy Award for Best Pop Album of the Year for The Fame Monster, that this is part of her... I suppose, periodic reinvention. Now, Lady Gaga has been a fascinating subject for us at Overthinking because she, more than anyone, has been the most overtly conscious of the need for pop stars to constantly reinvent themselves. Now, this, this isn't exactly a groundbreaking revelation. You know, anyone who studies pop music or actors or celebrities of any sort knows that after a while, a celebrity has to reinvent themselves or else they're going to lose credibility. They'll sort of drop off the radar and people will lose interest in them. But where Lady Gaga is interesting is that she seems to not only know it the most explicitly, but do it the most overtly. It's kind of like watching a, a Broadway show or a theater show where the stagehands actually physically come on stage and you can see them moving props around and, uh, and such like that. And it, tap, and it taps into a, an article, a New Yorker article that I've cited in the past in my, in my piece on Tiger Woods about what's called the Iron Law of Stardom. It's from, this, uh, it's from this 1997 article by Louis Menon from The New Yorker, which states that basically you're allowed to be a star, like not just a celebrity, but a star, like someone who really dominates the news cycle for about three years. That's really as long as the zeitgeist can encompass you. And after that point, you either have to reinvent yourself or you're going to fall off. And people, people will cite counterexamples like, oh, what about the Beatles? And, you know, the Beatles actually went through several reinventions. Like, oh, what about Madonna? Madonna actually went yeah. through several reinventions. Mm-hmm. So, like every every example cited, every example cited against it is usually just just an indication of the fact that people have to constantly reinvent themselves. And Lady Gaga not only does this, but she does it pretty 
pretty uh, pretty publicly as well. Like she she does not shy away from the fact that oh, I'm going to do something completely shocking and weird the next time I show up in a public place. You don't know what it's going to be. And I, while while this is while this is definitely uh, definitely interesting, I. I wonder at times if she's going at it a little too fast, primarily because, I mean, really, if you think when she when she came to prominence, which was like what in in two thousand eight, I want to say when was her first when was her first debut? Two thousand eight. I think that sounds about right. Yeah. So her first her first big album dropping in two thousand eight. So two thousand eight, two thousand nine, two thousand ten. If you consider two thousand eleven, really the 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 tail end of that of that three-year cycle, then, I mean, she's falling off. She she should be, if this iron law holds true, falling off at this point. So even the constant shocking reinventions at this point are going to get tired. I would expect that by next year's Grammys, if she shows up in, like, a swan dress or descends from the sky in a rocket-powered, you know, jet pack and then hook shots into the Grammys or something like that, a la Bionic Commando, it's... <laughs> It's it's just not going to be noteworthy. People are going to say, "Oh, okay, Lady Gaga, you know, hookshotting like Bonnie Commando, yawn." So I mean, last- that's what it felt a little bit like seeing her come out of this egg thing. It's like, "Oh, Lady Gaga's doing something else totally crazy again." Yeah, so I, I think I think this might be the I think this might be peak Gaga years, really, and everything after this is just declining, declining quality of of Gaga production, and you know, we're going to have to stage deeper and more expensive oil rigs farther and farther afield in order to. Uh, <laughs> In order in to, <laughs> to really drill her, John, is that what? Yeah. Uh, Yay! Just, just while we're just just while we're engaged in a race to the bottom, I figure I'll you know throw you throw my hat over the wall. Um, does the do you think that the the kind of the constant reinvention? Uh, what is it? What is the relationship between John's comments and Pete's comments? That is to say, do you think that the constant reinvention, um, which is a choice? You know, to be different ways uh, in in reinventing yourself, you're sort of you're sort of intentionally recreating yourself. I.e., you're you're sort of exercising agency. Um, uh, do you think that that undercuts the message that there are some things that are beyond the reach of one's agency uh, in in one's personality? That is to say, I was born certain ways, and other ways I I choose to be. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I mean I guess so so I mean the, the the first connection that jumps out at me is the is the political one which is that um that a lot of uh sort of uh scapegoating and red scaring and, and sort of mobilization of the majority in acts of sort of you know general pogromery against the minorities um and, or the weaker sects in a civilization is caused by this need to reinvent, right? Because you can have a perfectly fine, you know, republic chugging along and the government wants to keep telling people to do arbitrary stuff. And at some point or other, people are going to get bored of doing the things that the government tells them to do. So they have to invent some sort of new thing to get all hyped up and scared about. Uh, and so they'll tell you, oh, like, let's go kill these people. We hate these people. And, and so you have to keep reinventing. And even if you use the same enemy, you have to keep reinventing who they are over time, right? You have to keep reinventing things about them over time. And so you're in a constant sort of state of, of regagification, right? Where it's like, well, you're reinventing yourself as, as a political movement of oppression, and then the, the sort of counter movements have to reinvent themselves too, because you're, you're in a race against each other, right? So it's like the government is saying, like, you know, we hate you because of the fact that you are so weird, you wear weird clothes, or we hate you because you're so gender bending, and you also, or we hate you because you don't play a real instrument, or like we hate you. And like there's all these sort of qualities of subversiveness that you can identify with somebody like Lady Gaga that you can go against. She's a pretty uh, good, I mean, she's guess, a pretty good piece. Piano player, by the way. 
Yeah, no, yeah, definitely. So, I mean, that that's definitely true. I'm thinking about, like, sort of uh, the ongoing kind of uh, cultural backlash against anything that's sort of vaguely new wave or, like, kind of, like, techno-influenced or, or any... I mean, I don't know the proper words, probably, in terms of music criticism for, like, everybody from Boy George to Lady Gaga, who's been, like, a sort of performative, wearing a lot of structured clothing in order to sort of uh, defy human form and, like, extend the notion of what a person looks like in order to sort of cast a metaphor for what you might expect and... And, and conformity and nonconformity, things like that. But, like, there's a lot of things that you can keep coming up with to criticize people for. Like, oh, this person is a socialist. Like, oh, this person is a disco artist. And then, and so the connection between uh, the need to reinvent and the sort of need to identify where you come from is that people will keep prompting you to do it because they will keep having to come up with new nonsense in order to maintain their own sort of uh, mind share, in order to maintain people's attention. Uh, it's all a fight for attention. Like it's all sticking pencils up your nose, right? And it's like you can't stick the same pencils up your nose for more than three years. Then you have to find newer pencils, and then you get stinger missiles, and so on and so forth. I don't know. You, you, you know what? You know which government ran out of things to keep its keep its people occupied and engaged and lost their interest? Hosni Mubarak's. Siri, if if Mubarak had like you know started wearing a really crazy suit. And it'd be like, guys, guys, I'm taking care of things. I'm sorry about this crazy mistress I have. And you'd be like, 82-year-old man with a mistress, revolution over. Because everybody's like, what the hell? And then, like, nobody cares that nobody has any money or food. But uh, seriously, seriously, you know who gets away with that? Kim Jong-il. I mean, he keeps yeah. coming out doing crazy things. Saying like, oh, I'm the world's greatest basketball star. Like, oh, I have this thousand-foot movie screen. Or oh, more, more, have- more realistic, more actually true to, true to life. Oh, like... I have nuclear missiles. Oh, I shelled this South Korean island. Ooh, I sank your battleship. Yeah. I mean, if we want to extend this uh, a little bit farther and look at some of the some other history stuff, maybe it isn't a coincidence that time periods in which you see upheavals in, you know, you say European history in like the 1600s, like the English Civil War and the French Revolution come at times when the control of fashion in particular sort of moved out of the ruling class into the sort of ascendant ruling class, right? And sort of like the new things that were happening were not coming from, uh, from the aristocracy anymore. They were coming from people who had new industrial ways of making clothes. And, and like I also wanted to – I also always sort of wondered when you talk about a particular part of the world being dominant, when they can't really control everything, like when you talk about Louis XIV's France, like – controlling everything and you look at its actual geographical extent and it's it's not that impressive relative to other people printing the things that the people are ascribing to right like that's the three-year cycle like like louis the 14th was a lady gaga of his day right and that he's like reinvented himself in this in this new style and he had the crazy <laughs> headgear to go along with it um yeah. Maybe this is all like maybe celebrity as a form of control is like much more endemic because people talk about celebrity now as if it's this new thing. Right. But but, you know, maybe celebrity control is something that's functioning in a whole bunch of different kinds of areas of society. And of course, there's not a controversial statement, but um, I'm putting it out there as if it is, because that's what the news does to make things sound new and exciting. Yeah. But in fact, Yay. it's the same pop dance track we've heard for the last 30 years. <laughs> yes, but you know what? <laughs> 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 She's got a little nobody. <laughs> 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 
Then you could even make an argument, like, because I was thinking, I was about to say something along the lines of, like, well, it's a new booty shaking every three years, so it doesn't matter. But it is your, your booty shaking all, all the time. You could even think of, like, fitness obsession as, as an aspect of this, too. You could say, like, people feel this need to reinvent their bodies, even if they're okay with their bodies, because a certain amount of time goes by and you get bored of it, and you want to have something different and something new and something better. And, and maybe it's, th- it's that urge for the new as much as sort of, like, any sort of uh, broad cultural demonization of some quality that you don't like, right? Maybe it's your sort of lack of, uh, of comfort and, and a lack of ability to be comfortable with stuff. I mean, isn't this also the topic of a lot of Goethe's Faust? This idea that like people need newness and like nobody would be happy with anything for eternity. Um, I don't know. I, I read Faust a long time ago. Um, but I think that's honestly, I only read I only read the first part of Faust. I read the easy part of Faust. Uh, I think the idea is that he needs he's, he's in search <laughs> of some area. sort of perfect moment, right? That's supposed to exist forever, and once he finds it, he's he's good. Uh, yeah, like well, that's the deal. I, that's the deal with the devil, isn't it? That like yeah. if ever I can satisfy you, I get I get your soul. Right, which he wouldn't be able to because he'd come out with a lady. He have to come out with a new Lady Gaga album every three years with a totally different premise, and like and and Faust would keep getting bored of it. Right, and this is sort of like identified by a lot of high artists as an essential quality of human nature, but doesn't really bridge over. We don't see the connection between the two. We don't see why is it that there needs to be a production of Othello in like a turtleneck this year, and then next year they're dressed up like samurai, and then three years after that, like you know, they're dressed up as a bunch of cats. Like, why well, do we have? Pete, to I thought that, that you, I thought that you, uh, I thought that you were in favor of revivals of of great works, and in fact, would like to see the practice uh, expanded into other art forms. You know, that's true. I am very much in favor of revivals. I like exploring things from different angles. I do think that sometimes it's done in a, in a lazy manner, I guess. Um, it's also, I think, I'm also, you know what I'm in favor of? I'm in favor of broadening the tent for what should be revived, right? So it's like, why are we reviving the same things every three years? Sure, why yeah, we why, why, are we doing, uh, why are we doing Othello in Turtlenecks when we yeah, could why, be doing... Yeah, why are we doing Say Anything in Turtlenecks? Right. Or like, why aren't we doing, like, you know, Wait, Eagle actually, Eye? Were they not, well, I'll bet there were some Turtlenecks in Say Anything. Chewy, <laughs> point taken, point conceded. <laughs> Haven't watched yeah. it in a while. No, I want to. I want to see say anything, but with or is it say anything but with an iPod? Is, is, yeah, is that, exactly. Yeah. It doesn't make it doesn't make quite the same thing to like hold the uh, you know the iPod Nano above your head. That's totally like the George Lucas Steven Spielberg ET solution is like is like re-release say anything, but Photoshop out the boombox and replace it with an iPod. <laughs> with, a walkie, with a walkie-talkie, because whenever yeah. you replace anything, it's with a walkie-talkie. Yeah, fair. Although enough. since since Cusack uses both hands, it have to be it would have to be two iPods. Right, <laughs> that's true. right. And Unless what he's what he's playing is uh, what he's playing is the Flaming Lips Zyrica, which is the, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> only half of it though. Yeah, only yeah. half of it. Which is the album yeah. that was released on on uh, four compact discs that are meant to be played simultaneously on four CD players. I'm sure it's a few times. I love that. I've, I love that that album. That's a great album. I'll endorse that album as long as you're drinking rhyming beer while you're while you're listening to it. <laughs> At the uh, yeah. the fail whale whale tail split rail and the snail mail <laughs> snail mail with a pale chail trail. What? So, so what else has happened at the Grammys tonight? We've talked a lot about Lady Gaga, you know, as we're meant to her being at the her being near the tail end of the zeitgeist. But uh, there was oh. a huge there was a huge differential in profanity when CeeLo and Gwyneth Paltrow sang a song together, right? Didn't that happen? Someone was telling me that that we're really surprised that Gwyneth Paltrow and CeeLo were singing a song together. Yes, they sang um, "F You." 
They did. Oh, she sang. She sang. Uh, she sang. Forget you. With did they sing? Forget you or did they sing? Fuck you. Which did they sing? I. Um, it's, it's not to say from this New York Times live blog that I'm reading here. It appears that um, they sang a few and that they they censored it on air. So like the, basically the audio dropped. Out. That's awesome. To Gwyneth Paltrow sang that song on the air. That's appear, really that appears to be the case. Yes. Okay, I gotta look up the YouTube video for that. Well, that's oh, it. Pete, you know, like again, this is this is again why you should be watching Glee. You know, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow <laughs> per- performed that song on Glee, but right, they, per- right, they right. performed it as "Forget You" okay. and not the other. Wait, they did? Yeah, I, I could be mistaken. I think it's actually "Forget You." Oh, but, so it's uh, really like a reenactment so, of a Glee scene? Oh, okay. Yeah. Man, I'm not. Okay, so let me let me talk about you. See, thing. it's a remake, Pete. It's a remake. You like it? Uh, fair enough. Is it with Gwyneth Paltrow with short hair, like in Sliding Doors? They have like two different versions of her. No, never mind. Go but, ahead, Mark. Uh, let me talk about the, the other part of the Grammys that I actually saw, which is actually noteworthy, which is the Justin Bieber, Usher, Jaden, Jaden Smith performance. Okay. So most notable thing is that, yes, Justin Bieber is going through puberty now. His voice is significantly lower than when he recorded his first round of hits. Um, if, uh, as you may all may recall, uh, the song Baby featuring Ludacris, is in the key of E originally. He plays a solo acoustic guitar on stage in the key of C. Those of you following it at home, that is a full uh, major third step down and sounded very different. Um, and uh, and I, 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 I'm worried. I'm worried about the Biebs. I'm thinking that he might be losing his magic and uh, in, in losing some, a few notes off of his range. So we'll, have to, we'll be following the story very carefully. But um, aside from that as well, he came out with a bunch of ninjas. It looked like uh, it was like... <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm serious. It looked like it was... I love that like, really fine clarification of like the specific notes and keys. He's, he's a bunch of ninjas. It looked, like, it looked like Mortal Kombat. I was tweeting this. It was like, it looks like Justin Bieber discovered Mortal Kombat last week. Uh, yeah, he's why, covered by, and then he just, he just came out with like, like Scorpion and, and Sub-Zero. You know, yeah. that, that sort of a ninja mask type of thing. And so they're dancing around. There's, again, this Asian motif thing that I wrote about or tried to write about um, a while back with the music video to Somebody to Love. Right. A random Asian motifs and imagery which don't really signify anything except... I don't know. We could talk about otherness some more. Just like It looks like the product of a 14-year-old's mind. It's like, ooh, ninja is cool. Right. Well, you know, I mean, that's sort of what he's marketing to, I guess. So wait, so so I want to send Justin Bieber like in the mail. I'm going to send him a uh, a, a flouncy shirt with ruffles on it and like a, a really long brown wig and like a copy of Bad Out of Hell because he's going to be a, bar- a pop baritone soon and he's got to learn how to make that. Oh, oh. <laughs> God. What would that be oh if Justin Bieber the next oh. If his like voice dropped just enough that he had to really holler in order to like get everybody's attention because he couldn't <laughs> the ladder anymore. Oh man! If Justin Bieber started singing "Bad Out of Hell," like that would be awesome. Oh yeah, man. yeah, because yeah. there's there's been three "Bad Out of Hell" albums now. I think, and, and the fourth is certainly due. Is Jim Steinman still plugging away, or is did he kick did he uh, kick the ball? Oh, I'm sure I'm sure he is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jim, and it, and, it, and it instead, like, don't worry. Like they they encoded his songwriting skills into an algorithm somewhere. They can crank up <laughs> awesome power belts for years to come. Not long ago, but you're all coming back to me now. That's yes. Yeah. <laughs> so so cool. to make, I know we've been struggling all night to make this discussion less heteronormative. So I will, I will, I will <laughs> do my best to steer it one to steer one for the ladies or for the, you know, or for the the guy favoring guys by by talking about the the Bob Dylan, Avett Brothers, and Mumford and Sons lineup because the three of the three of those groups, if you consider Bob Dylan a group, all got on stage and played a played a medley of their songs. Uh, Mumford and Sons being a uh, being an indie British group, a uh, very sort of lo-fi that played uh, their hit, The Cave. 
the Avett brothers playing Head Full of Doubt, Road Full of Promise. And I, I don't have here what Bob Dylan played, but presumably one of his songs. He has several. He so, said the one that goes. But in any case, ladies, uh, Mumford and Sons and the Avett brothers, both both kind of attractive, as I'm, I'm given to understand. They're both good artists. So I know I know the ladies like them. So there you go. Something for you. Don't ever say I didn't give you anything. So wait, so but here's an. I mean, this is interesting, right? Because uh, was it a folk performance or is it like an indie alt performance? Like, what genre were they shoehorning Bob Dylan into this time? <laughs> well, I mean, Mum- Mumford and Sons are sort of sort of folksy, roxy. Uh, Avett Brothers, I'm not as familiar with, but Mum- Mumford and Sons have a very sort of British slash you know Irish hills folk sort of sound. But not like in a Dropkick Murphys kind of way. No, that's <laughs> dropkick Murphys. I would, I would <laughs> I'm just it, messing with you. It uh, is, it is, oh, okay. So, say, so is, is this is a what? joke I shouldn't get because they're they're punk. There's a difference. There's a difference between folk and punk. If the I classify everyone punk. by their ethnicity, that is the only thing that matters. I was born this way. That's how it works. <laughs> <laughs> or as matter. So the dropkick Murphys and Riverdance are the same musical act. As as <laughs> no, no, no. If the 20th century taught me anything. Anything. It's that folk and punk are different genres of music. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Uh, is that a joke for folk and funk enthusiasts to get? Or no? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Okay. Yeah, don't tell, so, don't so, tell, Woody, don't tell Woody Guthrie. So, so it's interesting because <laughs> Bob Dylan has this, this arc, right, where he starts out big time as a folk protest artist and then he kind of like becomes this big star and his music kind of crosses over and then he goes into this sort of like experimental phase right where he's like he he kind of betrays his fans and goes electric and all that other stuff but then he sort of and then he sort of becomes this institution right where I I feel like even if he releases new dynamic tracks the weight of the work he's previously established he's like Bruce Springsteen like even if you like his new album it's not really going to move the center of gravity of where people consider his work to reside right but uh but he, he did spread the field enough early on that like he can get slotted as sort of a mark of legitimacy into different styles of uh, just different sort of marketing packages of music, right? Uh, I mean, I, I guess there's that. So so it's like and so there's a lot of different things that can be called folk, right? Like like one of my friends asked recently, like what's your what's your favorite folk song, right? Or folk protest song? And I was like, oh, it's maybe it's like uh, like if I had a hammer or something, or like this land is your land was actually my answer. But that doesn't really sound. That's a very different song than like the times they are a changing, right? And which is in turn a very different song from anything by a folk artist that's like new today, right? Um, I mean, I don't know. I mean, what do you guys think about that kind of stuff? I, or do you think that at this point, those kinds of classifications are they things we make that work because we're comfortable and has has like the sort of compartmentalization of these of the audiences for this music sort of broken down to the extent where the terms aren't serving as a useful shorthand and you just Google search it and you don't need you just search Mumford and Sons and you don't search like folk folks post pre neo funk folk rock. I don't even know. Well, I, I, I sort of gave up on genre as a classifier when I saw an MTV commercial that was talking about offshoots of crunk. And I thought, <laughs> it, is, is crunk really established enough that it needs subgenres? Like, oh, this is, a particular, this is a particular region. And, of course, it probably is. And I'm being, you know, very, very privileged and dismissive in saying that, you know, all crunk is alike. But at, at the same time, I, I well, think... Well, no, um, John, all happy crunk is alike. Every <laughs> unhappy crunk is unhappy in its own way. <laughs> I, I would say that it's not that crunk isn't established enough to deserve it. It's that the qu- the qualities that make something crunk aren't tightly defined enough to justify subcategories, right? It's like it's like something that is crunk is sort of by definition somewhat sloppy, 
right? So it should have some more kinds of variants to it. At least that's my always my understanding of it, right? That, that, that makes sense. I mean, and I've I've talked about this on the site as well that you know a genre needs to be well established and have a genre already needs to be well established and have some you know successful examples from it before people can come back and start labeling it a genre. So, you know, when, when Krunk first came out, people weren't saying, like, oh, here's this thing. It's called Krunk. Enjoy. There yeah. was instead the success of, you know, the ATL sound and Lil Jean and all of them. And then people came back and said, oh, you know, this is, this is something kind of different from, you know, East Coast versus West Coast hip hop. Yeah. It, it deserves its own name. And then three years later, they got bored of that, and they needed to reinvent <laughs> it in some way. So well, they're like, "Hey, well, let's, like, this is Memphis Crunk, and this is the, you know, this is the this is the chronic crunk. This is the crunk with the special stuff. This is the crunk that's made by the government secretly." Three, and we'll really three years. This is the Bob Dylan crunk album. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> three years, more like three minutes. Am I right? Re- oh, oh. <laughs> Next year uh, prediction. Next year for the Grammys, Bob Dylan's coming out in an egg. And Jacob Dylan is going to lay it on stage, and we're going to the the Oroboros is 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 taking place. (laughs) Well, we we should leave it there. There's it's funny. Like I feel like we're into an interesting conversation now about genre. Um, Yeah, I mean, what you're suggesting, John, John, is that uh, genres get applied afterwards. That is that is to say, genre is a. uh, is a product of artistic criticism, not of artistic creation, and that uh, yes. you know, and that it's something that's always, always applied ex post facto, and and you know that's that's interesting. I had some stuff that I wanted to read. Apparently, Yale University Press has released an anthology of uh, rap, the anthology of rap, edited by Adam Bradley and Andrew Dubois. Um, what Harold Bloom did not have a part in this? Yeah, no, the Shock. Uh, Shock. Uh, oh. Oh God! He was too busy editing like poetry for really intelligent white children. There were two. There's a forward and afterward. <laughs> Sorry, that was mean. I apologize. Well, the, I mean, it's it's interesting because this this review that I read in in Poetry Magazine by uh, Adam Kirsch, uh, you know, kind of takes takes up this question of like. What, you know what is art and what is what qualifies to be you know what what qualifies rap lyrics? Why do rap lyrics both belong and also really don't belong uh, in a magazine like you know poetry magazine? The, let's see the um, um, oh yeah okay so the foreword is by Henry Louis Gates and the afterword is by Chuck D. That's that's what I was uh, trying mm. to to look up. So there are no Harold Bloom was uh, was nowhere to be found. Um, in yeah, and thing. I shouldn't be so mean to the pretentious, tr- tremendously pretentiously named book "Stories and Poems for Extremely Intelligent Children of All Ages," which is like, I mean, I just, I, it's probably not a racist book. I, I'm guessing he probably put some stuff in there to sort of appeal to different uh, people. I know, uh, uh, Pete. Pete, don't walk that back. I mean, once you. Once you become, you know, a Yale University professor, you lose a tremendous amount of street cred. I mean, <laughs> you, you could you could almost graph how much you lose. So uh, it's, I, mean, I, I I would not apologize for that. Not Princeton, enough, not Princeton though. Cornell West can uh, can rest easy. Um, I want to read one one passage. Uh, uh, one passage from this review. The gangster r- culture and rap bear some similarities to the warrior culture we can see in the Iliad. Both value physical courage, encourage bragging, indulge masculine self-pity, and make it easy to dehumanize women. And uh, with that, 
Let's bring this uh, this episode of puerile misogyny to a close. No. <laughs> <laughs> and the darkness swirled before their eyes. <laughs> <laughs> that's, um, that's not good at all. No, uh, with that, we, we leave it to you. We leave it to you to um, take up the issue of genre and artistic creation, to take up the, arti- the, uh, what, the political and the aesthetic uh, missions of Lady Gaga and of pop music, to take us to task for our either our puerile sense of humor or else our heteronormativity or else our uh you know insufficiently progressive uh outlook on the world um and and to suggest ways in order to suggest ways um for it uh for it to be better i'm always amused when people say well get a woman on the podcast that'll that'll solve it i you know some of my favorite women are just as puerile as i am thank you very much and yeah, uh, I, I i believe that very strongly that changing the identity of the person doing the thing doesn't necessarily change the action right it's it's not really that you know people can do things people are capable of stuff yep you know don't limit Absolutely. yourself by classifying yep Absolutely. You know, whether you were born this way or not, people can do stuff. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) All right. So if you want to join the conversation, if you're a sucker, you can uh, email podcastoverthinkingit.com or call 203-285-6401. But we'll never get to your questions or comments if you do. The thing to do is to go onto the site and leave comments on the show notes uh, where very good conversations happen every week. Uh, If you want to help us out, uh, go onto iTunes and uh, leave us a rating. You don't have to type a review. You don't have to type any uh, uh, words. If you do, that's great and we appreciate it. um, but if you don't, uh, that's fine too. Just click on uh, just click on a number of stars. And hey, would it kill you if that number was five? Uh, and in the meantime, visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com, the site where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably, it probably doesn't. Berkshire Brewing Company's flagship brew is a light-colored, medium-bodied ale, exhibiting exceptional freshness through its two-row pale malt backbone and signature hop flavor and aroma. In the words of renowned beer writer Lou Bryson, Steel Rail EPA is, quote, what the water in heaven ought to taste like, close quote. (laughs) You said Steel Rail. (laughs) 